under the lights up here, it feels really nice and warm. <laughs> Listen, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, as we again are in the last chapter of a year-long study now in God's Word from 1 Corinthians 16. Tonight, I know your bulletin says we're going to start at verse 5. We're actually going to go back to verse 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 14. As Paul begins, begins, we have one more week, begins to wrap up his letter with some travel details and final instructions, with words about his comings and goings, next week uh, we'll finish this book together, Lord willing. The Apostle Paul has said a lot in this letter about sound doctrine, about right teaching. He, he has to correct false teaching in Corinth again and again. And, and when you read him with all his other letters like Romans and Ephesians, you might get the impression, incorrectly I think, that, that Paul is lopsided toward theology and what we think and less interested in what we do and how we live. But that isn't the case. Here in 1 Corinthians 16, he shows us, in fact in all the book, that what we believe shapes how we live. And it matters how we live. So tonight in chapter 16, we consider his pastoral care for people through very practical instructions. And in doing so, Paul shows us his heart, his concerns, what weighs on him, his priorities, his ministerial concerns. And in doing so, invites the Corinthians and us to consider what's on our heart and is it like-minded with his. So let me invite you to consider God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, now verses 1 through 14. This is the word of God. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do on the First day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord, as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers but it was not at all his will to come now he will come 
when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we do ask that you would write this word on our hearts and shape us by it for your glory, for our good and the well-being of your church. Glorify Christ tonight. Lift him before us. Help us to be more like him. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter 15, which we got out of a couple weeks ago, is the famous chapter on the resurrection. It's chapter 16 that speaks of the practical needs of God's people. Chapter 15 is about the hope we have for the future. Chapter 16 calls to help one another in the present. Chapter 16, uh, chapter 15, he speaks of, the, the, of Jesus rising from the dead. And all who are united to Jesus will rise with him in the coming resurrection with a new body. He speaks to our destiny. But here in chapter 16, he speaks of caring for the poor, caring for the church, caring for the spread of the gospel, caring for young ministers and such. That is our responsibility. Now, obviously, in light of this comparison, Paul does not subscribe to the view that you can be so heavenly minded as to be of no earthly good. Far from that, he expects those who are heavenly minded to be of great good. If heaven is your home, then people can be your priority. And you can give away your time and your money and your energy and your life, knowing you get back at the resurrection far more. So you can abound in the work of the Lord, as he concludes chapter 15, knowing your labor is not in vain. So chapter 16 speaks to the, the works of the Lord in which he wants us to abound. And that's where we are then tonight. So what are these concerns that are on Paul's heart that ought to, if they're not there, ought to be on the heart of every Christian? I want to highlight five or six things he says by way of looking at how in 1 through 4 he speaks of, of the collection of the Corinthians. Uh, then in verses 5 through 9, how he speaks about himself, what Paul's going to do. Then at verses 10 and 11, he speaks of Timothy, what Timothy's going to do. 12, uh, uh, 12, he speaks of what Apollos is going to do. And then in verses 13 and 14, what he calls all Christians to do. So let me, let me invite you to consider this passage uh, in that way. In the first place. In verses 1 through 4, by way of review, but looking at it from a slightly different perspective, notice Paul's concern for suffering Christians. He's concerned for the poor in the church in Jerusalem who are suffering. We looked at that. We we said Paul wants us to be faithful stewards of our time and our money and to give generously uh, to others. The Corinthians were to take up this offering that it might travel to Jerusalem and relieve the poverty of their brothers and sisters. And so uh, we want to think about this, but as we jump into all the things we learn about what's on Paul's heart, I have to, I have to say that I feel completely rebuked 
by the abounding love in Paul's heart that I find so lacking in my own. And as we walk through these things, maybe you'll feel that way too. And I want to say at the outset rather than the end, may the Lord give us repentance and greater likeness to Jesus. Now here is his first concern, the suffering and the poor Christians in the churches in Jerusalem. And Paul wants these Corinthians to give generously with other churches to provide for the basic need of these fellow believers. Consider this, friends. There are different kinds of poverty, of course. On Friday, in my office downtown on Broadway, uh, two men popped in unexpectedly. Both I've known. uh, We have provided for them in the past. They are both apparently homeless and, uh, by their own uh, witness, schizophrenics. And they uh, both came in to chat, as they sometimes do, uh, and uh, were looking for help. That's one kind of poverty, friends. I guess, if I had to, that folks like that, those two men, will always need the charity of others just to get by week to week. There's another kind of poverty, of course, and that's the financially downtrodden, who barely scrape by week to week, who sometimes rely sometimes on the charity of others, and, and sometimes they simply go deeper and deeper into debt until bankruptcy. And then there's another kind of poverty, right? Perhaps the fastest growing poverty in our own nation is that of those who are on the edge, who are maybe one major unexpected uh, car repair, home repair, or medical bill from going into poverty and financial crisis. The largest percentage of these people are widows and divorced moms raising children without the help of anyone else. And as we grow in a church, as a church, I hope that we can think through and be able more and more to help folks in these kinds of situations as part of our neighbor love. But that's not the kind of poverty Paul is speaking of here. He's speaking here of the poverty of fellow Christians who are suffering because they are either outcasts from their families, they've lost their jobs because they believe in Jesus, or they're being persecuted and imprisoned for believing in Jesus, or they live in places of famine and economic distress. We know that all those things were going on in Jerusalem. At the time Paul wrote this letter. These are the ones Paul wants to raise money for. It was a collection for the saints. For the fellow brothers and sisters in the household of God. Even though they live a thousand miles away. Let us. Let us. Like Paul. Care for the welfare of the household of God. And helping begins with caring. And let us demonstrate our care in some practical way. When, when believers help believers, we encourage one another to believe that our eldest brother, Jesus, cares for us. Which, of course, he does. And so often he does that through the help of others. One practical way we can do that is to begin to save up even now for our annual Christmas collection for the destitute widows and orphans and retired ministers who are come to the end of their lives and have nothing left. If you have other ideas for how we can do this, I'd love to hear them. But helping the poor is on the heart of the apostle. It's on the heart of Jesus. And it should be on our heart. 
That's the first thing. That's the first concern. The second concern you find in verses 5 through 9. It's a word about Paul and his travel itinerary. When he, and, and in it, he shows his concern for the church and the spread of the gospel in the community. Uh, here he begins, verse 5, I'm going to visit you after passing through Macedonia. I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter. Winter would have been the time nobody traveled, really. Unless you, of course, had to uh, because, of, uh, because of the difficulties of it. And so he says, I might even spend the winter with you. Uh, he says, I want to spend time with you, verse 7. I don't want to see you just now in passing. I don't want to run in and run out and have a meal and be on my way. But I'd really like to visit and spend time. In other words, Paul is showing you his brotherly affection for the believers at Corinth. The believers he's rebuked. For 15 straight chapters. And he actually wants to spend time with them and show them his brotherly affection and love. He felt towards them like what he felt towards the Thessalonian church when he says in, in his letter to them, First Thess, Thessalonians 2, 7 and 8, We were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And that's Paul's heart here. He doesn't want to just pass through the door. He wants to be with them. And so he says, I hope to stay with you. But then notice he says, if the Lord permits, if the Lord opens that door for for that to happen, it's my intention, but I don't know if it's the Lord's intention. Now, we could build a whole point of a sermon on this, but I think it's, it's helpful just to recognize that the future is unknown to Paul, but Paul knows that the future is not unknown to God. That God actually has a plan for the future, and he will either open the door or close the door, and he expects to walk through that door if it's open. This is his view of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I take responsibility for, I, for where I am now, Paul says. I'm in Ephesus. This is where I am now. I intend to stay until, until um, the celebration. Yet I recognize that I may go in the future. But whether or not I go is a matter not only of my intention and desire, but of the will of God. God may close that door. Right now, Paul says, I'm going to stay here. This is what I want to do. And I want to do it because a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me here. That's why I'm staying. Two reasons. One, because the door is open, which means that there's a lot of effective ministry, which which means that God was giving some kind of success, many opportunities to preach the gospel. The gospel was spreading throughout Ephesus and the surrounding region. Christians were being built up, unbelievers were hearing about Jesus. But he says there's a second reason I want to stay. It's not only because there's a wide door open, but because there are many adversaries. In other words, Paul says there's a lot of opposition, and I intend to stay uh, not just because there's an open door, but because there's, there are those who are trying to close that door. I'll do a lot of good if I stay, Paul says. But if I leave, Satan will cause a lot of harm. So I have to stay here where I am, where I'm writing from. I have to stay to oppose 
those who would oppose the gospel. That's what he says. I'm here to strengthen the church in the midst of her enemies. But he knows in all this that God opens the doors and God closes the doors. The presence of opposition does not mean the door is closed. It may be the very proof that the door is open. When effective work is happening on the Lord's behalf, we should expect that there would be opposition by the enemy against that work. So in all this, anyway, we see the heart of Paul for the well-being of the church and for the spread of the gospel. Now look, for us, we may not, like Paul, be called to the ends of the earth. But we are engaged where we are, or we ought to be. And we might ask, are we engaged where we are? And are we preparing for the future, whatever door the Lord might open? Um, William Carey, another minister, pointed out, William Carey is the great pioneer of, of modern missions. He was a shoe cobbler in England. Uh, but what he did when he was cobbling shoes is he put in front of his face, day after day, a map of the world. And while he labored, he prayed. And while he labored, he, he considered the needs of the lost. And he wept over them. And then he planned and he strategized for work. And one day God hit the launch button and sent William Carey to the ends of the earth and to India where he opened a door for the gospel. And the progress of the gospel in India was astounding. And he's opened a door for the gospel for every missionary who's gone there since. But what he did is he used a man who was preparing for the future, even while he was doing the work God had called him to do in the present. Is that our attitude? That's the question. We care about the church and the progress of the gospel. Is that in our heart? Now, the third concern comes from a word about Timothy. The third concern is this. Paul has on his heart young ministers. The mentoring and encouragement of young ministers. This is what Timothy is. Notice he says in verse 12, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. What's Paul saying? Well, Timothy, if you know the story, was like a son to Paul. Not of the flesh, but spiritually of the faith. He was a son, and Paul had a tremendous relational affection for this younger brother in the Lord. He cared about Timothy, Timothy's ministry, his, his preparation for that ministry, the work that he did, his, his progress as a minister. He wrote two books to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. And Paul looks forward to his return. He can't wait till he comes back and they can be together again. So because Paul cares so much about this young minister, Timothy, he cares about how the Corinthians treat Timothy. Timothy was not bold like Paul. He had a timid disposition. And he was young. He was very young. Even years later, when Paul writes 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, he tells Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Well, Timothy is a good five years younger than that when this book is being written. He's really, really young. And it is all too common for those who are elderly, and I make no accusations among the people I know at Redeemer. But it is all too common among those who are elderly, elderly to disregard those who are young. 
And that's not a godly attitude. And it was all too common for the Corinthians to be impressed by ministers who were outwardly impressive, eloquent, larger-than-life people-gatherers. And here's Timothy, a timid, quiet, very young man and minister. And Paul remembers that those Corinthians, they love to compare and contrast their favorite ministers like you love to compare and contrast favorite ice cream. And they love to have debates about them. They love to line up behind one versus another. And he fears for Timothy's well-being amidst that congregation. And so he says, do not let anyone despise Timothy. Welcome him. Receive him. And send him on his way in peace. Because he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. And so I want to say to us, even young ministers should be treated with respect. And those who are older should treat them as younger brothers and help them and encourage them along. And I make no claim to be young. I'm younger than some, I realize. I'm sort of, I don't even, I didn't want to write it and I'm not going to say the word that begins with middle and that ends with age. I don't know if it applies. Some of you think I'm past that already. But those of you who are very young. But listen, we all need all the encouragement we can get and every minister I know needs encouragement even from his people let me just say don't think I'm discouraged by you I've I've never been discouraged by any one of you Uh, but all ministers need encouragement and as a church I look forward to the day when we can as a people um, have other ordained ministers among us serving us in this church plant even as we encourage them and train them for their future ministries wherever those ministries will be. We aim as a church, our long-term hope is to have seminary interns who are being trained theologically but need to get some practical experience. They may spend a year with us or, or two years with us or even in certain cases six months with us. But we could welcome them, we could love them, we could encourage them, we could... We could give them some guidance along the way. We aim as a church to be a church for the university down the road. We long to help cultivate the gifts of JBU students. And for those who sense a call to ministry and need some guidance in about, about their preparation, we want to be a church that does that. In, in short, we want to have on our hearts the well-being and the future success of, by God's grace, Uh, young ministers and we want to be a part of helping them along the way may the Lord put that on our hearts as it was on Paul's and so you see a word about Timothy then you see in the fourth place a word about Apollos notice the language here verse 12 now concerning our brother Apollos I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers but it was not at all his will to come now he will come when he has an opportunity now this is the Apollos that we read about in chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is the Apollos about whom some of the Corinthians said, I follow Apollos. And others said, no, I follow Paul. And others said, no, I follow Peter. And the spiritual ones said, they thought they were super spiritual. I follow Jesus. I don't know what the rest of you are doing. But they had camped up and around certain ministers in opposition to one another. This is that Apollos. And... um, 
And we, we might, as one minister put it, we might ask, why would Paul urge Apollos to go to Corinth? Apollos is, in the eyes of the Corinthians, his rival. I mean, some of them absolutely loved Apollos and detested Paul. He was a much better preacher than Paul by Paul's own testimony. And that was the reputation. Paul, Apollos was a man of eloquence. When people heard Paul personally, they weren't that impressed. He speaks big in his letters, but he's kind of, kind of nothing when he's around us is, is kind of how people thought of Paul. So here's this young, dynamic, great uh, preacher, Apollos. And Paul says, I urged him to go to you. You know, why didn't he say, I urged Apollos to go to India. I urged him to go to China rather than I urged him to go be with you. What that reveals is that Paul saw Apollos as no threat. That he was not a rival to him or likewise in reverse. That he would have been happy for Apollos to go and set the Corinthians straight just like Paul's letter was designed to do. He had no animosity. They both knew that Paul had planted, Apollos had watered, but God had given the growth and God would get all the glory in the ministry. And so Paul's not threatened. So he he says, I strongly urged him to visit you. But Apollos didn't come. Why? Well, it says it was not at all his will to come now. And that may mean it was not Apollos' will, or it may mean it wasn't God's will. But either way, Apollos didn't think that he should go now. Um. And right there, I want to pause and reflect for just a moment and say another thing we see on the heart of the Apostle Paul is the limit of his apostolic authority and his concern not to trample the people of God and the ministers of God with his authority. Paul did not take it upon himself to command ministers to serve in certain places. He urged it. But he didn't command it. And he's an apostle who propagated sound doctrine and commanded that sound doctrine be taught in the churches and false doctrine be opposed in the churches. But here he is not acting as a bishop in the sense of one who tells pastors and priests where to minister and who tells congregations what minister they must have. He was not a bishop In that unbiblical sense. No, Paul, you won't be surprised to hear me say, Paul was a good Presbyterian. (laughs) Which means he was a good presbyter. Which means he was a good elder. That's the meaning of the word in our language. He was an elder. And he viewed other pastors and, and ministers and fellow elders, therefore, as brothers with whom he shared ministry but not brothers over whom he had the right to command the location of their ministry. And that is an important principle, and we should know this as a young new church that that has as its government a Presbyterian form of government. We should know that, that, that we are to be distinguished, as Paul is, from an authoritarian, top down, hierarchical form of government. What we have in Presbyterianism is a representative government. 
Uh, an authoritarian government would be what you would find in like an Eastern Orthodox or a Roman Catholic or an Episcopal or a Methodist church where a bishop would have authority over pastors to appoint them to different places. But in a representative government, we have multiple elders functioning in leadership over the people, caring for their spiritual well-being. Like in Presbyterian and Reformed churches, Lord willing, that's what we're supposed to be. And those elders themselves are approved of by the congregation, or else they don't serve in that congregation. We believe in the right of the people to say no to a man, or yes to a man. Now, historically, not to get bogged down here, but historically, it's not until the second century, some 10 decades after Christ or so, that the idea of bishops being an authority over local pastors took root in the church. And I want to suggest why. Because people with authority are always tempted to use their authority beyond its limits. When, uh, when Christian Herter was governor of Massachusetts, he was running hard for a second term. One day after a busy morning uh, chasing votes and he'd had no lunch, he arrived at a church barbecue. It was late in the afternoon. He was famished. So he got in line to get some chicken and he's walking down uh, past as they put food on the plate of each person and the lady puts one piece of chicken on his plate and he he pauses and he stands there and he says, may may I have a second piece of chicken, please? And and, uh, she says, well, no, sorry, I've been told I can only give one piece of chicken to each person. And, and he says, but, but I'm starved. And she says, I'm sorry, only one to a customer. And then, though he was, as the story is told, he was a modest and unassuming man, yet he decided that was the time to throw his weight around. And he said, ma'am, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And she said, do you know who I am? I'm the woman in charge of the chicken. <laughs> Move along, mister. (laughs) Listen, those in authority are always tempted. Always tempted to exercise their authority beyond the limits of what has been prescribed for them. And that's always a danger. But Paul here knows his limits. He knows he doesn't have the power to command the placement of pastors. So he urges Apollos he doesn't command him. But notice in doing so, he protects Apollos' reputation among the Corinthians. He says it was not at all his will to go now, or perhaps God's will, we're not entirely sure. But if he meant Apollos' will, it's not at all Apollos' will to go now. He follows that immediately up with, but he intends to come when he has opportunity. Apollos loves you, he wants to be with you, just now is not the right time. So so, uh, here you see uh, another Thing on the heart of the Apostle Paul, uh, the limits of his authority for the well-being of the church. And finally, you see what he calls uh, the Christians to by way of action. First, he said, as for me, then he said, as for Timothy, then he says, as for Apollos. And then in five quick phrases, he says, as for you, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you be done in, done in love. In other words, he says, don't just get your theology straight. Do something. Be watchful and stand firm in the faith. Absolutely. In other words, be on your guard. Don't be led astray. Don't be tricked. Don't be fooled. Don't be misled. Stand firm on Christ and don't let yourselves get pushed around. 
You trusted Jesus to save you, and Jesus saves his people. You don't need anything else. Stand firm on that. And then he says, act like men, or depending upon your translation, quit you like men, I think is the old King James. Uh, It's an expression for, um, well, let's just say in the first place, he's not being sexist here. He isn't saying... To all the women in the church, you've got to quit being women. You need to be men. He's not saying that at all. Um, the contrast is either with don't act immaturely, act maturely. Okay? In other words, act like responsible adult Christians, not irresponsible immature Christians. Or his contrast is with uh, being frightened, shrinking violets who wilt in the face of opposition and difficulty. Versus those who would be courageous in the face of that opposition and difficulty. And stand up and be strong. Be strong and courageous. Much like Joshua in the Old Testament was told by the Lord, be strong and courageous. Um, He wants that. And, And the be strong here is just like in Ephesians 6 when he tells us to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. He doesn't mean be strong in yourself. He means be strengthened. Be strengthened from outside yourself by the Lord in whose power you walk. So he wants them to be strong and courageous. And yet he says, while you are tough-minded, be tender-hearted. Let all be done in love. In other words, don't think that being strong and courageous gives you the right to be mean, short-tempered, arrogant, proud, self-righteous, selfish, or cold-hearted. But be tough-minded and tender-hearted. Stand strong for the gospel. And be loving in your actions towards people. That's the heart of the Apostle Paul we see here. Caring for the poor and the suffering saints. Caring for the church and the spread of the gospel. Caring for young ministers in their journey. Caring for healthy church government. Caring for Christians to be faithful and courageous and loving. Let me close then, close then with wise words of a pastor who pastors me from afar. When in commenting on this, position, this passage, he said this, we, we all know, don't we, how easy it is to lose sight of these high and holy purposes for our lives. How easy it is to slip into the habit of simply maintaining ourselves, going about our lives day by day with little sense of the larger and higher purposes that we see here. Our lives so easily, he says, shrink in to themselves and it is true he confesses even for me as a minister and I agree that I can in the round of my duties forget the great purposes for which we have been assigned and summoned the ministry can become so easily just a job and not a service to the church and churches are susceptible to the same temptation that besets individual Christians and ministers. They slip, unbeknownst to themselves, into neutral. They may be quite happy, quite content, but they are no longer actively, energetically, intentionally giving giving themselves fully to the work of the Lord. No longer pushing hard to extend the boundaries of God's kingdom in every direction. And so I say to us, precisely because our Lord Jesus cares for these things, as evidenced by the heart of the Apostle Paul who imitated him. And because Jesus gave himself for these things, and even death on a cross 
on our behalf for our failures in these things. Therefore, let us call out to God, oh, make us more like Jesus. And put what is on his heart on our heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in the midst of a lot of words, grant your truth to truly shape our hearts. And we do pray you pardon our failures, that you deepen our love, and that you would make us more and more to walk in your ways. In your name we pray. Amen.